give the people what they want from People's Dispatch and Globetrotter. I'm Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Zoe from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter, coming to you live every Friday from the People's Dispatch Facebook page and later as a podcast. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Welcome to Give the People What They Want. Um, today is the 18th of 18th of June already. It's the 18th of June 2021. Welcome to our show with Prashant and Zoe from People's Dispatch. Hi Prashant. Hi Zoe. Uh, nice to see you. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Hello. Look, uh, there's no better place to start our show today than to talk about the dialogue held between um, President Joe Biden of the United States and Vladimir Putin of Russia. They met in Geneva. Um, they met around the time that the great national liberation hero from Zambia, Kenneth Kwanda, died at the age of 97. Kenneth Kwanda, the first head of government in the state of Zambia, which was the British colony of northern Rhodesia, um, led the fight not only in northern Rhodesia to create Zambia, but also, of course, was the leading opponent of the apartheid state in South Africa. He was the opponent across the continent, inside the Commonwealth, playing a very important role. Kenneth Kwanda also uh, gave his soil in Zambia is home to national liberation movements across the African continent. A, a very significant man, a very tall tree has fallen at the same time that Putin and Biden met in Geneva. Now, the interesting thing about their meeting in Geneva, Prashant and Zoe, what I found interesting was I'm so glad that they reaffirmed the principle that a nuclear war cannot be won. I mean, I must say uh, it's 2021. And it was encouraging to have two important world leaders both sitting on major nuclear arsenals um, to make this comment that a nuclear war cannot be won and it must never be fought. Well, thanks for that. Apart from that, I should say, very little came out of that summit. There was verbiage, you know, bilateral strategic dialogue. Uh, one of those terms that we hear often when, you know, um, when leaders meet, but regional stability, uh, humanitarian aid, terms like that, even some talk of vaccines, but set all that aside. The most important thing here isn't actually what Biden and, um, and Putin agreed on or didn't agree on. That's not the most important thing. Most important thing is the United States seems to have returned to a strategy that it had given up during the Obama era, and that was to divide Russia from China. Um, Henry Kissinger many years ago wrote a book called China in which he made the argument that the United States should befriend China and isolate Russia. Uh, others took the opposing position to isolate China. It seems that Biden is going down that road, trying to um, bring Russia close to the West again. It's going to be very difficult. In fact, in the airport, as he was boarding Air Force One uh, coming out of Geneva, Mr. Biden said, and I quote, Russia is in a very difficult spot right now. They are being squeezed by China. They want desperately to remain a major power. Now, this is an interesting statement, and I thought it bears a second of analysis. Firstly, Russia and China have not been closer together than in any time um, in modern history. Their strategic dialogue has been uh, very firm. 
uh, both Xi Jinping and Putin have reaffirmed these ties. They have economic ties. There are some vulnerabilities. Uh, certainly, um, the trade goes largely one way. It's from China to Russia. Russian goods coming into China not at a high premium. It's mainly Russian energy that gets exported to China. There are some vulnerabilities, some gaps. But basically, the strategic link between Russia and China seems relatively inviolable. So that's an odd thing when Biden says they are being squeezed by China. It's a kind of malicious uh, attitude towards what's happening in Eurasia. But secondly, when he says they want desperately to remain a major power, you've got to say that uh, by dint of having nuclear weapons and since the United States and Russia in this summit had to accept that nuclear war is really unacceptable, they de facto accepted the fact that Russia is a major power. I don't think it's desperately trying to be a major power. There are some contradictions in the strategy. United States has driven by dint of the Ukraine policy, the forward policy in Ukraine, the betrayal of the Minsk agreement, for instance, and pressure against Germany to uh, complete the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The United States has created seeds of dissension with Russia, which will be hard to unravel. It's an interesting summit. I'm glad they had this summit, but I don't think we should make too much of it. I very much doubt that Russia is going to break links with China and go back to being, you know, part of the G7 plus one. Uh, used to be for a time, people may remember the G8. No longer the G8. Uh, Vladimir Putin was not there at Carbis Bay in Wales. He had to meet uh, Biden separately in Geneva. So I doubt very much that that axis will be developed. But certainly, it's important that they met. I hope tensions dialed down. Certainly, the cyber weaponry thing was there, and we'll come back to that story later. But it's a considerable story of some importance. In all this, vaccines were discussed, not with great seriousness, not with great seriousness. This is back on the table. There's a vaccine summit being held by the Progressive International this weekend, starting today, significant meeting. The question of Africa and vaccines, Prashant, what's the latest? Right, Vijay. It's it interesting also because, like you said, the G7 met recently and they very grandly promised one billion doses. And there was obviously a lot of, you know, hullabaloo and noise about that. Because the fine print shows that the one billion doses will is over the next one and a half years. And this comes even as there's been quite a lot of alarming figures, including from Africa, one interesting statement by uh, Oxfam says that based on its studies, that by, based on the current rate of vaccination, the low-income countries in the world could take up to 2078 to vaccinate all their citizens. Now, of course, this might this is likely to change if the, with an increase in production and all that. But I think this kind of shows the extent, the huge gap that exists right now as far as vaccines are concerned. We've talked about it continuously on the show. But... Africa's case is especially important here because very recently the number of cases in the continent just crossed 5 million. And that was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge number as we can guess. But the scary thing is that less than 1% of the population of the continent has been vaccinated. So fully vaccinated with two doses, that is. And this is a continent of over 1.3 billion people, 16% of the world's population and less than 1%. That is, I think as of June 15th, 0.8% of Africa's population had been fully vaccinated, just over 2% of the population having received at least one dose. And some of the figures are even scarier because we have countries which have not even, you know, have not received any vaccines at all, despite the presence of the COVAX initiative at the World Health Organization. Despite all these noble claims by 
the powerful uh, the powerful countries the rich countries in the world countries like tanzania or eritrea or for that matter the sahrawi republic haven't received any doses at all and country like burkina faso has not been even to uh, you know been able to administer even one dose you take a country like nigeria for instance which has which is the most populous country in africa and even they don't have enough uh, stock to vaccinate even one percent of their population so there's a twofold issue here one is of course the fact that you know the vaccines are very slow in coming which means that even if countries launch major vaccination drives what happens is that their stocks are in risk of uh, running out so south africa faces that problem tanzania faces that problem even morocco which has had a very good vaccination coverage is facing that problem so we have a situation where you know stocks are 80% 90% depleted and there's no real solution forward because india stopped supplying after its own internal crisis there has been still no decision on the patent waivers which was considered a very key step in trying to improve production so i think it i, I think it shows the kind of obscenity of the inequality we've been talking about because the countries in the west the united states the uk the european union especially in terms of advanced orders they have uh, bought vaccines or they've ordered vaccines to sort of cover their population five and six times over and we here we have countries which are not even able to vaccinate one percent of their population or two percent of their population so this pandemic really bringing out some of the most uh, ugly aspects of capitalism as we talked about the key part of course being that the variants are the big uh, you know unknown over here more variants emerge uh, what I, it becomes far and more difficult to control new waves likely they're talking about the possibility of a new wave in africa soon they're talking about the possibility of a new wave in india soon and despite here you know all this here we just have the west and the rich countries the g7 countries basically sitting pretty on top of these sources at the same time some bits of hope in terms of cuba of course the development of the two vaccines they've already they've already started say administering them internally and third phase, uh, third phase trials are on so that's definitely a sign of hope and Cuba's approach to vaccine development has been conditioned on solidarity. They have already had discussions with Venezuela and Iran. There is a possibility of, you know, that these countries might actually be able to produce them on their own, which is something that, uh, you know, with the big pharma countries are not able to do. They produce vaccines on their own. So there are some signs of hope, of course, in terms of global solidarity, in terms of South-South cooperation. But what we're seeing right now, I think it's very essential to sort of, you know, break this false image that the G7 is painted of them being some benevolent vaccine donors, considering the hideous amount of inequality involved. Yes, I mean, even the um, UN Secretary General at Carbis Bay said that this is really not in the details a significant proposal. Even Antonio Gutierrez said that. Uh, Peru struck hard by the COVID-19 um, disease, uh, struggling economically in the middle of an election crisis. Jose Carlos and I at People's Dispatch had a piece about the attempt to steal the election. Turns out the United States sends an ambassador there just recently with a CIA background. I mean, good God, Zoe, what is happening in beloved Peru? After the other election in the Andes in Ecuador, what's going on in Peru? Well, you know, it's one of the places where we thought we would see some, you know, quick good news because early on, you know, a couple of days out of the voting, which happened on June 6th, you know, it was clear that Pedro Castillo uh, was had pulled ahead and that he was going to win the race. 
And since then, basically, the country has been in a state of kind of a standstill of waiting for the official results to be certified, waiting for all the different instances to kind of declare Pedro Castillo the winner. At this point, um, I think two days back, the electoral authority had finished processing all of the votes, 100% of the votes, and Pedro Castillo continues to remain the lead. He has over 40,000 votes over Keiko Fujimori. Now, essentially, you know, as it's really well outlined in this article that you and Jose Carlos wrote together, essentially Keiko Fujimori has been preparing for this scenario wherein Pedro Castillo wins a very slim margin uh, ahead of uh, Keiko, and they've basically prepared a series of legal challenges of trying to invalidate certain votes, of trying to challenge votes from certain areas. I mean, a lot of people have said that even if all of the votes that they're challenging, you know, were to be overturned, she still wouldn't, she still wouldn't get the majority. But I think what we can understand from this situation is that it's about creating instability. It's about undermining the democratic process in a country that has really already suffered countless attacks on institutionality. I mean, the, the former president, Pedro uh, Pablo Kuczynski, you know, he was, he was impeached for, over corruption. Um, there was, a, you know, an interim president. It's been a constant, unstable, you know, situation in Peru where the people have completely lost faith in the democratic process. And what we've seen with Pedro Castillo is that people have been out on the streets since, you know, votes, the votes were cast to defend his victory, to, you know, peacefully respond demand that the Peruvian authorities in all instances, both the electoral authority, the uh, current, the electoral court, you know, respect the will of the people. And, you know, as, as it's outlined in this article, you know, they've pulled, you know, all the high, the, you know, first line of, de, of right-wing defense to kind of just attack the vote. You know, I mean, it talks about these figures who are really mired in controversy throughout their whole political career to, you know, attack the progressive movements. Um, you know, but all, all of that to say is that people continue on the streets. They continue to defend that Pedro Castillo has rightfully won the elections. They know that he's rightfully won the elections. And, you know, even though Keiko is trying to create a situation of chaos, of instability, of undermining the political process, people have really been determined uh, to defend this vote, to remain on the streets, and you know, to really bring that change which people desperately want in Peru. You know, it's an important election to look uh, toward because here you have the case of a, of a genuine plebeian leader um, who won a very slim majority. It should be said, it's a highly divided society, but uh, that doesn't give the the oligarchy, the right to steal the election. I think people need to look at this carefully. Uh, you're listening to give the people what they want, coming to you from People's Dispatch, peoplesdispatch.org. Uh, you must go and bookmark the site right away, straight away. You'll get these and other stories at the site on a regular basis. Uh, also coming to you from Globetrotter, you can visit us at globetrotter.media. Um, we are a wire syndication service. We hope you'll uh, take a look at some of the stories we've been doing. Now, some of the stories we've been doing. I've been on the phone for the last few days with our friends in Afghanistan, contacts and people we know in Afghanistan. A very complicated situation. The United States has pledged to withdraw troops by the 11th of September. Troop, troop withdrawals have already begun. Um, there's some concern now because there's no political 
process that goes beneath uh, the truth troop withdrawals the us will leave uh, essentially kabul relatively defenseless the government of ashraf ghani backed by the west uh, unable to find a way to create a unity government with the taliban that seems to be the preferred solution uh, from the united states from the un as well from pakistan and from china people are saying there needs to be a unity government as a transition till it's possible to have elections no hope of a unity government and that's partly because the doha process the discussion process at doha was cut off before it could advance i think ashraf ghani uh, didn't want to have any deal with the taliban but look it looks like it's there's no other option unfortunately uh, some sort of uh, negotiation has to happen now uh, very poorly reported outside the region foreign ministers of china of uh, pakistan and of afghanistan have a security dialogue and they've been a regional dialogue they've been meeting regularly they've been looking for uh, a possibility to create a solution in afghanistan which is the least worst solution don't forget um, in the 1990s there was a terrible period of civil war and fratricide once the soviet troops pulled out of afghanistan this is a time when at least there was a government with some legitimacy the government of um, of najibullah now ashraf ghani barely any legitimacy it looks like a government uh, placed there by the west not that different from the government of hamid karzai by the way who's emerged as a serious critic of ashraf ghani um, matters are quite grave in kabul and in afghanistan this security or regional dialogue between china um uh, afghanistan and pakistan has has impacts for china and pakistan i want to spend a minute to uh, explore these for one uh, pakistan no longer wishes to see the kind of instability um, in its border regions in in waziristan in the in the border areas in peshawar and so on large section of the pashto population pashtun population lives in that strip that runs from uh, you know the area of of, of waziristan down to uh, baluchistan there, there is no appetite for a return to the very serious problems that pakistan faced up there prime minister imran khan has said repeatedly doesn't want that on the other hand pakistan has told the united states that they may welcome the us returning to military bases in pakistan pakistan had not allowed the united states military to have a footprint in pakistan now they have said if the us withdraws fully and if afghanistan is unstable they might welcome the united states back that means that the taliban will not see pakistan as a neutral observer and you might see taliban attacks in and and serious problems for pakistan that's why pakistan keen to see some sort of unity government on the other side in china uh, a serious issue here because in china we have this called east turkmenistan islamic movement uh, which has uh, you know basically the in the uyghur regions in in sinjia province has has conducted some pretty serious terrorist activities um, this group largely domiciled in bits of, of of afghanistan quite close to the taliban the chinese um, uh, foreign minister wang has made it quite clear that china would not like to see the east turkmenistan islamic movement get the kind of support it does from taliban continued support and therefore if the taliban returns uh, in force if instability returns completely in afghanistan this is this will have spillover effects in uzbekistan and certainly 
um, in, in, in Xinjiang province. So China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, the government of Ashraf Ghani, very concerned about developments there. We're going to watch this closely. Just want to say it's one thing to cheer when the United States withdraws troops from Afghanistan, but absent a political deal, seems like it's going to be quite difficult for the Afghan people. Nobody's saying the United States should remain in Afghanistan even for another day. I don't think that's the message. The message is that pressure needs to be put on all political parties inside Afghanistan to have some kind of deal. Um, that's what we have. We're going to come back to this story. It's a significant story. Uh, but leaving Afghanistan now, we're going to travel back to Palestine, a very small part of the world, but my God, great significance. Prashant, what's the latest? Right, Vijay. So uh, it's uh, crazy, to, crazy. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's so much to talk about. The One of the key aspects right now being that we have a new government in Israel led by somebody who just around a month ago went uh, you know, on social media claiming that there was this hospital in Gaza which was sheltering Hamas terrorists and turned out he was showing a photo of a hospital in Pakistan. So, uh, right, so you have an active fake news peddler, yet another active face and fake news peddler joining the list of world leaders. And nothing new, of course, considering Netanyahu was famous for drawing pictures which supposedly described the Iranian nuclear program. But uh, we have uh, Naftali Bennett in power and Israel's policy doesn't seem to have really changed much. Two rounds of air raids on Gaza in the last uh, two days, last, I think last three days, especially, uh, apparently because incendiary balloons were flown into Israel and, there been, and the response has, of course, been airstrikes as usual. So uh, Bennett clearly continuing the policy of Netanyahu. Again, uh, not very surprising. Uh, Bennett was the leader of the settlement movement. He has been very clear about his desire to annex as much of the West Bank as possible in the past as well. So nothing to be really surprised. Uh, on the other hand, we've also seen that just a few days ago, the, there was a huge march around a thousand people, extremist Jewish settlers, you know, taking part in this massive, abusive, racist march, which had been postponed last month, the march which every year marks the occupation of Jerusalem by Israel. So, I mean, it's one thing, of course, that in 1967, Israel occupied Jerusalem, but they actually have an annual event where they go around marching, shouting slogans like death to Arabs and may your land burn or may your houses burn. And this event actively supported, promoted and endorsed by the Israeli government, it seems, because the law, and, uh, law enforcement agencies in Israel were busy setting up blockades so that the Palestinians could not protest a march which celebrated the takeover of their homeland. So, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's beyond a tragedy, it's beyond a farce, it's sometimes incomprehensible to see how these systems work because you have what the Israeli forces are doing, it's occupation, it's apartheid at its most, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so obvious, it's, it, there's no way to describe it. But nonetheless, of course, there has been continuous resistance. Uh, we have seen that in Sheikh Jarrah, the hearing on the eviction of the four families has been postponed to August. But again, this has been serving as a mobilizing point. I think the interesting thing, again, which we talked about earlier, but needs to be reiterated, is the fact that the kind of resistance is really unprecedented. The resistance in Gaza, the resistance in the occupied West Bank, the resistance in historic Palestine, which is basically the lands out of which, uh, the, which the Israelis took over in 1948. In all these regions, the resistance has been unprecedented. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this marathon uh, you know, of people running from uh, running between various places where 
Palestinians were suffering evictions. And again, there, there, was, there were assaults on them, there were attacks on them. But we've seen a new generation come to the ground, come to the ground in protests. Even now, I believe just a few hours ago at Al-Aqsa, the Israeli, uh, so there were Israeli security forces yet again wounded a couple of protesters who were after the prayers. There was a protest. So this cycle is definitely likely to continue, I think, especially after last month's very brutal attacks. The resistance has actually gained in strength. It has gained more allies. And Israel uh, really needs to sit and examine how long it can continue this process of brutalizing an entire population, brutalizing an entire country, you know, just to sort of continue its occupation of apartheid. It's quite stunning. Uh, the end of the last terrible bombing, this last period of bombing, 72% of Israelis polled said they wanted the bombing to continue. Um, so much for the possibility of a peace camp inside Israel is quite shameful. Although, of course, there are decent people who don't want this dispensation. Um, you know, Zoe, it's interesting that both stories you're going to do today are about a gentleman named Castillo. Uh, one Castillo, uh, of course, uh, leading the Peru Libre movement uh, to victory in a very tight election. The other Castillo, David Castillo in Honduras, quite an unsavory character. What's happening with David Castillo and the trial uh, of those who killed Berta Cacares? Yes, well, this is a story that, you know, received, you know, some amount of international attention when it happened. You know, Berta Cacares was killed on March 2nd, uh, 2016 by hitman inside of her home, you know, and there's been numerous investigations that have happened since then. We wrote a dossier that was released in March, April, uh, with Tricon that was discussing, you know, the 10 years uh, since the coup in Honduras and, you know, discussing cases of uh, persecution of land defenders like Berta. Um, and right now, essentially, in the beginning of April, um, the trial of David Castillo, who is the former president of the company that was operating the hydroelectric dam where Berta and Copin and the Rio Blanco community were resisting uh, has been going on, you know, so it's been going on for the past 38 days. It has been a really interesting and important trial because, you know, as Copin and the family of Berta have always said, you know, what's at stake in this trial to get justice for Berta, to bring those who killed her and planned the assassination and were behind this campaign of persecution against Berta to justice is not only about just for Berta and just for Copin, but it's about you know, dismantling the structure of impunity, which operates not only in Honduras, but across Latin America and really across the world, where those who want to impose projects of death, projects of displacement, you know, of accumulation, of destruction of nature, use all means necessary, um, threats, persecution, intimidation, and even assassinations and physical violence to achieve what they want, which is to take the people out of the territories and have full access. Um, and so, you know, this has been going on for a couple of weeks. It's been, there have been experts that have all kind of contributed to showing that David Castillo, who's the president of this company, was actively involved in coordinating with oligarchs in Honduras, particularly the Atala Zabla family and the group of hitmen who eventually killed Berta. Um, this week was really important week because Berta Zuniga, who is Berta's daughter and the current coordinator of Copin, uh, testified. And it's a really, really moving um, testimony. I mean, she kind of chronicles all of the persecution that Berta was facing 
throughout the last couple of years of her lives. And really from a personal perspective of being able, you know, of worrying for her safety of every time she said goodbye to her and not knowing what was going to happen. I mean, she reveals a lot of crucial details that clearly point to the involvement of David Castillo and really the upper echelons of the security state in Honduras, the narco state in Honduras, and their involvement. I mean, she was studying in Cuba and David Castillo makes a comment to Berta, her mom, oh, we'll have fun in Cuba. So, you know, all of these things, knowing that they had private information about her, that they were monitoring her every move and, you know, just complete complicity. So I think this is a really important case to pay attention to um, because it's, as I mentioned, what's at stake is the ability to, to get justice for people who are killed in, you know, defending these just causes. And, you know, that have an, that, you know, the perpetrators of these crimes have an entire structure behind them. I mean, David Castillo studied in West Point, the military academy in the United States. He's received payments from some of Honduras' most wealthiest families. And so these people, you know, they know impunity, they know that they can get off with these crimes, but it's time to show that they can't and that the people and their will for justice and their desire to fight for the truth will always prevail. Well, uh, th that's one opinion, Zoe. Uh, although uh, the arc of history doesn't always bend towards justice and uh, there are some very disreputable people in all kinds of positions in governments. Uh, some of those people, as it happens, um, are up there uh, just above the city of Frankfurt as the European Central Bank starts its three-day retreat where they're going to discuss interest rates, they're going to discuss the question of quantitative easing of various kinds, and they're going to discuss, I should say, um, the question of greening the um, European Central Bank's bond holdings, whether they should get out of the business of carbon. While the ECB is sitting up there above Frankfurt having their discussion, eating their canapes and so on, under the leadership of Christian Lagarde, um, we have the US Federal Reserve indicating the possibility of a two-point rise in, two-notch rise in interest rates. This is of great significance to the rest of the world. If the US economy uh, starts to see dollars going back into it, uh, this means that countries around the world are going to face much more pressure on debt servicing. Keep an eye on this. We'll certainly be watching this closely. You've been listening to, watching, give the people what they want, your favorite Friday tour around the world, a tour de force of, um, of web-based news coming to you from Prashant and Zoe from People's Dispatch. Go and uh, bookmark the site at peoplesdispatch.org and me, Vijay, from Globetrotter. Uh, it's great to be with you again. Uh, Zoe, Prashant, take care of yourself and um, we'll be, be back next Friday. I'll be in Caracas. It'll be nice to talk to you from there. Next As week. always, we will always be back giving you the latest. Sure.